For someone whose entire career has been focused on joy, why a podcast on pain? Because these stories need to be told. A good phoenix rising out of the ashes story reminds us all that not only can we survive, we can thrive. And when we emerge, we're different. That's the alchemy of pain. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Alchemy of Pain. I'm Brenda Viola, and I started this podcast because I went through my own dark season. And when I was in it, I wondered how the heck I was ever going to get out. But when you come through the other side, you're changed and sometimes for good. And I realized that there were so many stories. I wasn't alone. People who've been through very dark times and not only became better, but found their purpose through it all. And so I've been fortunate enough to attract all these amazing stories, and you're going to really enjoy today's. I'm so proud to introduce you to Mr. J, otherwise known as Coach J, and he is, as you can see on the screen, a betrayal trauma practitioner. I loved in his title, he talks about being an intrapersonal relationship coach, how important this relationship is that we have with ourselves. Mr. J, thanks for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate your time. So tell our audience how you serve in the world today. <laughs> um, you know, very uh, succinctly, I will say this. Uh, I never uh, sought coaching to be a practitioner. Um, I have a theater background and then I taught school. I was a special ed teacher, a special education instructor for many, many years. Um, coaching kind of found me. Um, one of the things that I thought about one day was, you know, I kind of been through a lot and it would be a tragedy for one day for me to be six feet under and not share the lessons of triumph that I learned from my pain. Mm. And it kind of sounded unfair to me and selfish if I were to take that six feet under. Mm. And so that opened up the door for, okay, how can I spread this word, help others? And we're so glad that you do and that you are. I was struck in your bio. I mean, you're a veteran, an inspirational speaker, an adoptive parent, but you say your childhood was anything but a success. And so often, you know, I interviewed Simon Bailey last week and he said, what you don't deal with will deal with you. And quite often our childhood trauma is what comes back again and again if we do not deal with it. Would you mind sharing your own you know, um, I, there's an old saying, if you don't um, uh, no, what is it? A lot of times you're in therapy because you're around those that refuse to go to therapy. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, I, growing up, we kind of marinated in trauma and abuse and betrayal. And 
Um, you know, I have a lot of stories about, um, I mean, first of all, when I was six, we had our house burned down. And when I mean burned down, I just don't mean there was a house fire. We went away for the weekend. And when we came back, we pulled into our driveway. And the only thing that was left was our chimney in our driveway. Um, so heirlooms, clothes, toys, you know, and, um, I remember, I mean, I was six years old. I'm going on 50 in a few months. I can still hear my mother scream when we pulled into the driveway. Um, uh, we, I transferred schools over 30 times before I even went to sixth grade. So that, that attachment never, I never started a class and ended with the same kids. Um, so, uh, you know, and then we go into sexual abuse and, and all this stuff. So I can go on and on about um, the, 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 the childhood, um, stuff. And it was, and it was, uh, you know, pretty, I'll tell you one quick story. Please do. I call it the black pair of pants. Uh, growing up, you know, we didn't really have money. And so uh, if I got clothes, they were either from a friend or a family member that outgrew them. And when I started, um, I think it was sixth grade, I, um, uh, started out with one pair of black corduroy pants and, uh, that I got from somebody. And uh, we couldn't afford a washer or a dryer. And so I had different shirts. And, and, and if I, once I was done with my shirts, I would borrow shirts from my friends just to, to vary it up because I had one pair of black pants. Well, I remember one time I was in the lunch room and I was eating my hot dog and I love mustard and mustard fell on my black corduroy pants. Well, I was frozen in fear because we didn't have a washer. What was I going to do? So got home and um, I found a black crayon. And so I colored in my, my mustard stain with my black crayon. And um, every few days I would have to go over my pants again and do this um, and try to maybe wash them out once in a while in the sink, you know, when I could with dish liquid or something just to, cause you warm whatever. Well, I'll never forget one time I was wearing my pants and there was uh, a couple seventh graders walking behind me. And as I was walking, my uh, thighs were touching and the chips of black crayon were falling. And I froze with fear because I just knew that the kids were going to know I colored my pants with crayon. They knew I wouldn't be able to afford a washer and a dryer. They were going to pick on me because I was poor. When you're a kid, your brain just, nobody even thought anything like this, but but that was me. And so um, that's my black pair of pants story is that, you know, we 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 carry a lot of this, you know, issues. Anyway, um, I uh, am an adult now. I love everybody in my family. I forgive everybody in my family. I understand everybody in my family. I don't excuse their decisions and their behavior, but regard I've learned I've grown to learn that um regardless if people deserve forgiveness, I deserve peace. Ooh, could you say that again? <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> regardless if people for deserve forgiveness, I deserve peace. That is a powerful statement. You know, part of the reason I do this is there are people listening and watching and I don't know what they've been through or what they're going through. Maybe it is abuse of some sort. Maybe it is poverty. The whole goal is to shine a light 
here you are speaking with great wisdom. You're obviously well-educated, but you were literally living on the streets. You quit school in sixth grade. How do you even do that? Uh, when you have no one looking after you, you can pretty much do what you want. <laughs> so how did you get from living on the streets to who you are today? How did you connect those dots? Well, uh, since you don't have a 20 years to listen to my story, um, very quickly, I, um, I, I, I quit school in sixth grade and, um, I, I kind of, you know, lived on the streets under bridges, typical story. Um, one of, wait, one I'm sorry. You know what, Mr. J you say, and you've made peace with all of this, but we're hearing it for the first time. And we're like, <laughs> typical story, anything, but. Oh, uh, well, uh, can I tell you something that I, that was yeah. horrific then, but it's kind of humorous now. Yeah. I was 14, homeless, and robbed at gunpoint twice. Now, that's scary. Don't get me wrong. But you know what's humorous? What are you going to steal from a homeless person? Like, why? Like, come on. I have nothing to steal. Like, well, why? What, put your gun away. I have nothing. I'm starving myself. <laughs> I, I mean, come on. What do you want? So anyway, um, no, you know what? One of my stories is uh, I, I'll never forget staying under the bridge and cars would go by ahead of me. And one of the things I would do to pass the time is create these stories in my mind. Ooh, I, I, that's probably a family that's just coming from Texas and they're on their way to Florida. And, you know, one of these days I'm going to have a family and I'm, you know, that's what I would do. I would make up all these stories of, you know, and what are they talking about? And are they singing as a family? And what song are they singing? And what memories are they having? And this was, you know, my way of just passing the time and, and yada, yada. Anyway, I, um, I can get into a lot of things, uh, in terms of, uh, my childhood, but what wound up happening is, uh, I, went and I got a job under the table, obviously, because um, I didn't have my working papers, didn't have anything. And I told them that I went to school at night. And, and so they let me work during the day. And then I had to get a job at night. And I told them I went to school during the during the day. So they let me work at night. So what I would do was I would bag groceries at one grocery store on one side of town. And the minute my shift was over, I would haul butt across town to start bagging groceries at the second store. And between both jobs, that gave me enough money where I could afford my first, my first apartment um, was my own first apartment. And I paid $180 a month. I was so proud of myself. Um, and uh, so um, what I would do is, I don't know if you guys have a Wegmans where you are, but Wegmans is a big, huge um, store. And years and, years and years ago, I don't know if they still do today, but they used to have their own brand of cottage cheese. And a pound of cottage cheese at Wegmans back in the day was 58 cents. So every day, what I would do is I'd buy a pound of cottage cheese and one package of ramen noodles, which was 16 cents. And so I limited myself to a dollar a day for a meal. So that was my dinner. I would get a pound of cottage cheese, ramen noodles, which to this day I love, by the way. Um, and I would just make them and I would mix them together and that would be my dinner. And that was feasible and that was good and whatever. And that's how I sustained myself for, for, for many years. Now, a lot happened, obviously, in between those years. But long story short, when I was about 19 years old, I walked to the community college, um, which was not a short walk. It was about 19 miles. It was freezing. 
Um, and I and I walked into a community college. Now, mind you, people that aren't raised with the college experience are clueless. Like there, there's different buildings, there's different people, there's different paperwork. There's so I walked into this one building clueless, and I just walked up to the first person that I saw, and I said, "How do I start college?" And they're like, "Who are you? Do you have an appointment? You know, whatever." I was like, "No, I just want to start college." And they're like. Well, you have to, you know, here, fill out this paperwork. and what, It was such a big rigmarole. Anyways, I said, please, can I talk to somebody who makes the decisions to, to enter college? And um, she called somebody who happened to be available. And um, I'll never forget her name. I'll tell you in a second. And so I walked into her office and I said, I, I don't know the first thing to do to enter college, but I want to go to college. And she was like, well, I'll tell you what. I need your high school transcripts. I need proof of residency. I need the, and I, whatever. And I said, well, I didn't go to high school. Um, she said, okay, well, I can probably pull some strings if you give me a GED. So no, don't have one of those either. <laughs> and she said, well, what have you been doing? Sort of, anyways, long story short, her name was Mary, Mary McMahon. And as I'm talking to her and she's putting approved on this paper, approved on this paper, approved. And I'm sitting here in my, heart is like kind of sinking into my chair. And I said, I, listen, I, I wasn't legally emancipated, but I've been on my own because she said, I need a letter from your parents. I said, I don't even know where they are. I, I, I don't, you know, um, I can't give you that. Can't give you high school chances. Can't give you this. I, I can't give you, I don't, can't give you a license. I, you know, I can give you my word. And I know that means nothing to you because you have kids in front of you every single day that give you their word and, 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 and probably, you know, many of them don't fulfill it, but I give you my word. If you pull any strings, you can, I give you my word, Mary, I will prove to you that I'm college material in the first semester. And if not, I vow to you that I'll walk away quietly. And um, so she just kept stamping her papers, stamping her papers. And I, I'm, I don't know, I guess I'm waiting for security to come and take me away. So she turns around in her chair and she's doing something. And she turns around and she hands me a piece of paper. And she says, one semester. And if not, you and I never met. I went on to graduate with high honors. Then I went on to my bachelor's degree and graduated with high honors. And then I went on to my master's degree and graduated with honors. And her name was Mary McMahon. And I will never, ever forget what she did for me. I'm so glad you named her. She was an angel on your journey. But I have to say the resilience of the human spirit that you believed in you. Where did that come from? Brenda, first of all, I don't probably don't have to tell you this. You never know how strong you are until being strong is your only option. Um, so you discovered your strength through a series of hard times, but you knew inside that there was more for you. Yeah, you know, it's funny because... I was raised in a family, and I and I say this cautiously, I was raised in a family that had deep-held religious beliefs. Now, I can't say they were acted upon, <laughs> but they were there. And so I always knew there was a, a higher power. I always knew there was a God. Um, for me personally, there was a, a, a Jesus, a Lord. Um, and... 
I've always had the no excuse mentality. As a matter of fact, uh, when I was 19, uh, I, 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 and I'm skipping around a lot and I apologize, but I just want to say after my first semester of college, the uh, registrar asked me, are you, are you registered with selective service? And I'm 19 year old boy. What, what, what does all that mean? I have not, I said, selective service. What is all that? And she was like, well, you know, are you registered with selective service? You, you know, we, we need to know if you're registered, you know, as a young man, whatever. And I said, well, wh how do you do that? What, what do you mean? And um, she was like, well, I don't know, but call this number and see if you're registered with Selective Service. So um, I'm at the pay phones. They were 10 cents at the time. <laughs> I didn't have many dimes. So I'm hoping. I'd... So anyways, I get transferred from one person to the next person to the next person. And next thing you know, I'm on the phone with an army recruiter. And um, I said, how in the world did I get on, on the phone with an army recruiter? I'm, I'm trying to go to college. I'm just, you know, whatever. So he's like, why don't you come down? We'll talk. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I know what these talks lead into, you know, blah, blah. So next thing you know, I'm signing away four years of my life to the military. And um, I went into the army and um, spent four years in the army. It was the um, uh, um, reserves. So I was, a I was able to come and finish my college um, uh, graduate. Anyways, after four years of the army, I loved the service so much, I transferred into the Air Force and did another four years in the Air Force. Uh, both branches, I got honorable discharges. Um, very thankful for my military service, yep. Do you think you loved it so much because it offered so much structure, which is such a shift from what you grew up with. Uh, yes. And I'm going to tell you something. One of the things that I learned and I took it everywhere I went, what, because, Ooh, I don't know if you know much about the military, but those drill sergeants, they, they challenged you to your core and that's where they began. So, you know, but, but they, I mean, you know, when they would really try to mentally manipulate, of course, you wouldn't ever say this to them, but I was like, oh, please bring it. You have no idea what I've been through. So bring it. I mean, come on, seriously. But anyway, um, no, the, I, I really enjoyed my military. So I did feel like a family. I felt like a family. And one of the things that it really helped, I mean, it really helped me do a lot. But one of the things that, I, and I will take this, I'll take a lot of things from it. But one of the things that took me is you don't necessarily have to respect an individual, but you need to respect the um, position they hold in something. Like, for instance, I didn't, res I didn't like a lot of my drill sergeants, but I respected their role in the military. Um, I don't have to respect even, I don't have to love my parents, but I do want to respect the position they were given. That doesn't mean that they didn't honor that position and, and I can, and I can hold them accountable to that, right. but I can still love and respect them for the position that they were in and everyone else, you know, from, from, from bosses to, you know, you name it. And I've had to, you know, cling to that a couple of times in life. Um, anyways, just to kind of end this, I, I, Wound up, uh, um, uh, I moved to New York City to pursue film and television. That's what happened. I moved to New York City to perform, to uh, uh, fulfill my long hard dream of film and television. After about eight months, I really started doing things. I was on the set of Sex in the City and Criminal Intent, and I was doing theater, and I uh, wrote and recorded my own dance album, and I was actually uh, going in the tri-state area gigging, and I was having a really great time. Can I just tell you, I want to be your friend. You're somebody I would have loved to have hung out with in New York City. And I want to dance to your album. And I had such a great time. 
I yeah. bet you did. But you know what? You look like you're having a great time now, too. I don't think you have a bad time. No, 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 no. Um, you know something? I, I love Dolly Parton. One of the things she says all the time is, listen, if you want to enjoy the rainbow, you got to endure the storm. And so, you know, um, I walk through the storm smiling and dancing now. Um, no, that's not to say that I don't have bad days. I mean, you're who doesn't? Sure. We're human. Um, but anyways, uh, what wound up happening is I, uh, in one of the dance troops that I was in in New York City, uh, we were flown down to Mississippi and we were trying, we're, you know, we we're with this big dance troupe that was performing in Mississippi. The Biloxi Hotel in Mississippi it was one of the biggest, best uh, hotels in Mississippi at the time. And one of the dancers was like, hey, Jay, have you ever heard of the New York City Teaching Fellows? And I was like, what's that? And they said, well, you go there and you um, uh, put on a, a, a class that you want to teach. And if they really like you, they'll actually pay for a degree for you to teach. And I was like, oh, no, I, I've never thought of teaching. I have no interest in teaching. I'm trying to pursue, pursue film and television. And she said, yeah, I am too. But you always want something to fall back on and whatever. Well, because I always have all my pokers and different fires, you know, I was like, you know what? Hey, why don't I do this? So I fill out an application. Three weeks later, they call me in and I go in front of these, you know, panel of like seven directors. And they're like, okay, you know, hand me your, um, hand me the class that you're going to teach, hand me, you know, whatever it was. And I was like, mm, what was I supposed to prepare? I'm sorry. And they're like, well, you were supposed to give us a class, you know, whatever, what you were going to teach, how you were going to break down, what materials you were going to use. I was like, I apologize profusely. There's no excuse. I'm so sorry. Um, do you mind if I just get up and, and show you what I've been working on? That was a lie. I wasn't working on anything. Um, <laughs> so, so they said, well, sure. I turned around, Brenda, and I was like, Jay, if there was ever a time to put on your acting skills, it's now. So I turned around and just pretended I was giving a first grade class on addition and subtraction. And I went through the whole process and I apologized again. I thanked them. And then I left. And I was like, okay, you screwed that up horribly. I went to the mail six weeks later and I got a letter. Congratulations. You impressed the directors. And, you know, we want you to blah, blah, blah. I just knew I was being punked and pranked. I was like, no way. No way. Next thing you know, I'm at Pace University from this uh, program, learning how to be a teacher <laughs> from the New York City Teaching Fellows program. So it's funny because a lot of things I don't necessarily pursue. They just kind of find me and then I go with them. Anyways, I was a special ed teacher for over 15 years. I worked everywhere from hospitals because um, even though kids are in hospitals um, with leukemia, cancer, you name it, they still have to have an education. I've also worked in um, uh, like many jails, juvenile detention centers, very scary places. Um, Federally speaking, kids still need and deserve an education. That was a scary place. That was in D.C. I used to work and um, teachers would leave in, in ambulances. I mean, the kids were rough, rough. You couldn't turn around to write on the board because if you turn back around, you could have a pencil in your eyeball or a scissor in the back Ooh. of your head. Whoa. But I'm telling you something, the three years that I was there, I got best classroom management awards every single year. And that's, I, I think one of the reasons, not because I'm this big, intelligent person, but I think what I did was I brought a lot of my theater into my mm -hmm. classroom. And when I, um, when I, I would, you know, as a teacher, sometimes you have to take your class's temperature and say, okay, what's it? And anytime I'd feel like a little fight brewing, because my kids love to fight. 
I would jump on my desk and belt out opera. And my kids would be like, okay, we got a crazy dude here. I'm just going to turn around and do my work. And you know what's funny? Real quick, and then I'll shut up, I promise. I what's don't want you to shut up. I okay. love everything you're saying. <laughs> Go for it. But you know what's interesting now? Now I work as a betrayal trauma practitioner and 99% of my clients are dealing with uh, adultery, infidelity, cheating. And you know what's interesting, Brenda? I can't even begin to tell you. Oftentimes when I'm working with clients, it's my education as a, as a practitioner that helps me. Sometimes it's the fact that I had a rough damn childhood that helps me. Sometimes it's my theater that helps me. Sometimes it's the fact that I was a specialist. So it's like life all of a sudden came together and found me. Mm. This is how you know, you, 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 you know, you, you fell into your calling, which by the way, I always say, we don't find our purpose through our passion. A lot of people believe that. I believe we find our purpose through our pain. And that is so what I have found myself too. It's interesting, my background also. I was going to be the next Diane Sawyer. And then QVC came calling and I was all of a sudden selling Capodimonte at two o'clock in the morning. And then they unceremoniously dumped me. So I was left, my journalism career went out the window because my credibility got shot when I started selling gold chains on QVC and reinventing myself every time along the way. And here I am interviewing people because my favorite gift as a little girl was my Mr. Microphone. And I would interview everybody and here I am. You know, what you are meant to do, do you believe it's just in there and it's like an unsinkable cork and it will come up no matter what happens? Yes, but you have to step into it. Mm. You know, when before COVID hit, I would... um I would go to schools and give little pep talks to the teens because Lord have mercy, like depression is skyrocketed, uh, low self-esteem. I like so many things have, have, for many reasons, you know, not only just post COVID, which really did damage to a lot of people and teens included or teens especially, but in this day of social media, which is wonderful in many aspects, uh, but it also did a lot of damage for the self-esteem of our teens because nowadays uh, the the drug of choice is how many likes our posts are getting, and if you don't get a lot of likes, that you uh, not only not not only that it's like social media. As adults, we can see a lot of people posting pictures that are nice, and we can say, "Yeah, that's nice," but I wonder what happens in between the posts with the family. Teens don't do that. Teens are like, "Why can't I go on that vacation?" And how, look at the what their what their mother's cooking them for dinner. They don't understand that real life is what happens in between the post pictures that are posted. You know, that's not real life. But um, anyways, I would go around to the schools and I would talk to teens and and um, and, uh, and and just tell them, you know, talk to them about depression and and things like that. And one of the things I would say about social media is just like anything else, you have to you have to use it or get a hold of it. It's going to get a hold of you. Social media is wonderful in that it brings people that are far near. However, it also brings people that are near far because I can't tell you how many times I'll invite people over to my house that even haven't seen each other in a while. And Brenda, when they come in, oh my God, where have you been? Hugs and kisses and what's going on in life? Half an hour later, everybody's sitting in my living room on their phone, ignoring everybody. 
So, so we've come to this thing where we're getting, did you know, what was it in 2019? More proposals were done via technology than in person. So people were asking each other to marry them on Facebook, on text, on social media, rather than in person. That's where we're going. Note to future husband, that's not how I want it to happen. Oh my gosh. So how did betrayal become your focus? Okay. So um, uh, I was living life. And um, uh, my father abruptly died. And when I mean abruptly, I was on the phone with him one day, talking, laughing, telling jokes. And four days later, we were lowering his body under the ground. And um, it was probably about three days after that, three o'clock in the morning, I woke up, Brenda, to my very first ever panic attack. Now, people would always tell me they had panic attacks and I never appreciated them. I'd be like, well, just take a few deep breaths, blow into a bag, you know, whatever. Whew, there's no substitute for experience. When I got up from a panic attack, I literally either thought I was dying or having a heart attack. But this is what happened, Brenda. I woke up in the middle of the night, three o'clock in the morning, a couple of days after my father was buried, and I smelled smoke. And I jumped out of bed. I have, I have young kids. And I jumped out of bed and I'm... Smelling, smelling for smoke. Uh, like, oh my God, where's this coming from? And I go in my kitchen. I go in my living room. Now, I live in a big house. Fortunately, it's like a 5,000 square house. So like I'm I'm all over. I'm upstairs. I'm downstairs. I'm, I'm finally opening up my front door. My neighbor is barbecuing at three in the morning. I don't know. Like, why do I smell smoke? Everywhere I went, there was no smoke, no fire, nothing. So finally, after I con you know convinced myself, I was confident there was nothing. I went to lay down and the second my head hit the pillow, I was transformed back to when I was six years old, standing next to my mother while she was screaming about the fire in her house. And I was like, oh my God, unhealed childhood trauma is coming up. That's what my father's death brought up. That sent me on a mission, a mission. And I am podcasts and books and therapy and self-help and praying and you name it. And I got involved with this one organization um, on trauma. And eventually the um, the lady reached out to me and said, you help quite a, quite a lot of people in this, uh, in our organization. Would you ever want to become certified as a betrayal trauma practitioner and do this, you know, for a career? I was like, oh, no, 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 I, I'm, I like what I do. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. And, just uh, like you didn't want to join the army. Yeah, I know. Know. I thing, know. You know. I'm trying to, long story short, I became certified as a betrayal trauma practitioner, went through that whole certification process. And now, like I said, 99.9% .9 of all of my clients, um, I'm dealing with a primary attachment betrayal. So that's a betrayal from a parent, a spouse, a boss, you know, a primary attachment. Um, and I, I I promise to you, I'm I I, I don't want to sound cocky, but I I'm I'm very good at what I do. And I don't say that because I want to pat myself on the back. I think I bring, listen. I have degrees up the butt. I have credentials off the butt. But I'm going to tell you something. None of my clients care about that at all. They could care less about what degrees I have 
the best education I have, Brenda, is a PhD from the School of Hard Knocks. And that's what people want to feel. When she's sitting across from me, they could give a crap what degree I have. What They want to know, have you been in my shoes? And what have you done to get the hell out of my shoes? Help me get there. Yes. Can I just go back to that moment where you smelled the smoke and you realized childhood trauma was coming up and trauma, trauma, absolutely trauma, the house burning down trauma, your dad dying suddenly, but betrayal. See, when I think betrayal, I think someone cheated on me or someone lied to me, but is it taking it too far to say that you felt like God or life betrayed you by ripping your dad away from you or burn have it, allowing your house to burn down? Um, uh, I don't know if I ever pinpointed or pointed a finger or whatever, but certainly as a, as a child, you, there, it, when, when you live in a, a very abusive and you marinate in dysfunction and toxicity, you do feel completely betrayed from society. When, um, when my classmates, when I was younger would talk about how their fathers would throw the ball with them on the weekend. I would always think, what does that feel like? Or, I mean, or their mothers would bake cookies or something when they go. I mean, I mean if, 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 if I don't, I can't tell you a time I ever came home from school and, and didn't see the police in our driveway, didn't fear getting molested by somebody, didn't I, like, you know, the, my experiences weren't coming home to warm cookies and milk. And I'm not saying many people do that, but it's different. It's different when you marinate in trauma, when you marinate in it, because I don't want to get all too technical, but your amygdala never gets a chance to go into rest and digest. Yeah. And, 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 and again, I don't want to get into all kinds of stuff, but what happens when your amygdala is in a constant state of, of, of uh, being triggered is cortisol is pumped through your body at such a massive rate and stage, which is great in a way because it numbs the pain. But what happens is a lot of people don't realize cortisol over time, when it goes into your body, it starts eating away at that white and gray metal matter that's in between the two spheres of your brain and the, in your brain, um, the, the synaptics in your brain have to communicate. And what happens is people that have cortisol running through their body, well, one of the many, many, many things that happens is that you get a lot of people that you talk to that can tell you of an experience that's traumatizing, but no emotion attached, or an, um, or a, a traumatizing, ex or an emotion with no recollection. And, 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 and another reason for that I can go into is because our hippocampus, which is usually formed around the ages of four-ish, could be a little before, could be a little after the amygdala, when it gets, um, when, when it gets tr triggered and it has to go into protection survival mode, it completely takes over so much room in your brain. It covers up the hippocampus, which is in charge of memory, which is why when you're talking to people that have a lot of trauma, there's lots of areas in their life they can't remember. Yeah. They're like, they're like, well, wait a minute. Did that happen? That happened when I was 12. No, 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 no. It couldn't have been when I was 12. I must've been eight. Mm -hmm. No, it can't be when I'm eight. That must've been six. No, maybe I was 10. It's like, 
you know, <laughs> because your hypocampus, you know, can't deal with all that, which is why I say when I'm talking to uh, somebody who either stepped out of a relationship or somebody who's healing from doing the betrayer, the betray, you know, somebody who was the one who made the decisions to step out. I say, you have to realize something. You have to realize when somebody discovered they were betrayed by you, a primary attachment, what you're doing is you're going into their brain, which has a filing cabinet that says, okay, um, today I'm interviewing Mr. J. Tomorrow I'm doing this. Last week I met my father for brunch. Two years ago I had my first child. You know, what we the reason we have these memories is because it keeps us safe because we understand predictability. After this, I'm going to take my clothes off, get into a bath and get into bed. We love predictability. It keeps us safe. Now, if you find out somebody betrays you, what somebody does is they take that filing cabinet out of your brain of all the memories you have. They walk up a very steep mountain and they turn that filing cabinet upside down. And then the wind comes and it blows all these files all over the place. So you're thinking, oh, my God, where are these files going? What's going on with them? Whatever. Then eventually when the dust settles and you try to put these files back in your brain, what happens is that you have no idea what, wait, did I eat lasagna last Thursday or was that, and you're trying to put your files back in and you have no idea where to put these files. A lot goes on, a lot goes on. Um, so anyways, what wound up happening was, and I always say, I didn't find certain things, certain things found me. I think because of my experiences, it just really helped me understand betrayal. And now when I'm working with couples with betrayal, and I don't want to minimize anybody's betrayal, Lord have mercy. No, it's life-changing, life-shattering, but betrayal is betrayal is betrayal, meaning that it, it hits the same core things. Mm -hmm. And so now don't get me wrong. I've been betrayed in relationships before. So I do take that into my thing, but Betrayal is so much more than what's at stake. I always say when I'm dealing with a betrayal with a couple, about 40% of what they're dealing with is the is the impact betrayal, meaning I can't believe what my spouse did to me. But 60% is you're hitting somebody at their core insecurities that were unhealed from before. Um, and then so many times... Uh, it, it's interesting because I'll be talking to a couple and one of the ways you can hear somebody's core insecurity is just by sitting back listening because once in a while, and I, let me just say, let's just pretend I'm talking to a male, female couple. And let's just say the male's the one that stepped out. In the session, you might have the wife say, I can't believe you did this. Do you think I'm that worthless? Do you think I'm that worthless to you? And then the next couple, the woman will say, I, I, you, you did that to me. Do you think I'm that ugly? Do you think of, well, if you listen, it's like somebody has a core insecurity of being worthless. Somebody else has a core insecurity of being ugly. Now, don't get me wrong. Everybody can have a core insecurity of a lot of things, but, but, but just by them talking, they'll reveal what their core insecurities are. And then we can go in there and do the emotional surgery to fix the root of the issue, which can help set up the foundation to make progress with healing to where you are to it's a lot and if that relationship <laughs> still unravels you have dealt with your core issue so that you don't attract the same lesson you know i often hear once the tool has done its work 
you can put it away. And I, in my own life, had seen patterns of, wait a minute, this is same story, different players, different actors. The one common denominator is me. I must work on me. And that's the intrapersonal part, which is so important because you can't point the finger and say, he did me wrong. Off with his head. That doesn't solve the problem because wherever you go, there you are. I have learned 100%. Yeah. I say all the time. If we, we either revolve, I'm sorry, we either evolve or we revolve. That's it. Whoa. Okay. That's really good. Okay. So I could talk to you for the next 10 hours probably and, and make you be my best friend because I really, this has been one of the most enjoyable because you know, the topic is pain. And I often had started out the podcast saying, you know, that could be a real buzzkill, except for when you talk to people who have come out the other side and they have found through their pain, their purpose, they are serving the world in beautiful ways. And that's such an honor to, I'm so honored to share you with my listeners and my viewers how can people find and follow you and perhaps work with you so i'll tell you what um i have a um website it's um uh, the, as far as i'm concerned the easiest website it's mrjrelationshipcoach.com but i'm going to tell you this and i mean this with all my heart if people have zero interest in working with me seeing me talking to me ever hearing my voice again please just go to my website and take advantage of my many free um, uh, things. Uh, I Every single day, I post a little video on YouTube about anything from commu effective communication techniques and relationships to getting over betrayal to learning how to fall back in love with your spouse again after you know broken trust. Um, I'm everywhere on social media from TikTok to Instagram to you name it. Um, you are a TikTok phenom. <laughs> <laughs> I would um, love it. You know, it's so funny. Can I tell you something? Yeah, tell me. Okay. I, I was co I was coaching. I'm 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 practitionering, whatever. And one of my <laughs> colleagues said, Jay, you got to get on TikTok. And I said, No, there's a bunch of 18-year-olds shaking their boobs. I got, who wants to get on? I ain't got time for that. They're like, no, 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 no. There are 18-year-olds shaking their boobs, but there's also a professional side to TikTok. And I was like, no, 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 no. And so finally, you know, he he eventually said, really? So I said, you know what? I said, okay, why not? If I'm going to share my information, why not just share my information on TikTok? Whoever wants to watch it, fine, you know, blah, blah. And never in a million years, I promise you, never in a million years did I think it would go anywhere. And now I have over 20,000 followers and I'm like, oh my gosh. So I'm telling you, I'm somebody that just loves to put the pokers in the fire and, and see which what's going to catch on fire, you know, and a lot of things don't catch on fire. But um, anyways, back to your question, mrjrelationshipcoach.com. And I want to say this. If, if people could just take away this, other people give us pain, but we give ourselves suffering. I understand you were bitten by a rattlesnake. I get that. And I understand you're going to hurt. And I understand you're going to be bruised. And I understand you might get a swelling in your hand. And I understand you might even have to get it chopped off. But if you pick that snake back up and continually put the fangs in your arm, 
It's not going to do you any good. You've already been given pain. Don't give yourself suffering. You can be beaten and bruised, but you don't have to be bitter. You can become better. You deserve it. Every single person, Brenda, and you know this, comes into this world as a gift. We need to, we need to find out what that present is and then share it with the world. That's why we're called here. Seems like what that's what you're doing. Thank you. That's a very kind thing to say. And yeah, I do feel like here I am 60 and finally living my purpose. Finally. And in that sweet spot of what I was born to do, it's so fulfilling. This conversation has been so fulfilling. There's just one other phrase I want to throw at you because you use it in your website. Broken crowns still color. Can you talk to that for a moment? Maybe someone's feeling broken. Yeah. Um, actually, it's broken crayons. Still call it. Still, still create beautiful masterpieces. Unless you did say that and I heard a uh, uh, dialect. I apologize. No, no, um, no. You probably okay. said it. I, 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 I reduced it. I gave you the Reader's Digest version. So. Okay. I love it. Um, you know what? Uh, let me just say this. I don't know if you're familiar with Victor Frankl. I don't know if you're familiar mm -hmm. with Corey Ten Boom. I don't know if you're familiar with Nelson Mandela. Um, one of the things Nelson Mandela said when he was falsely imprisoned for 30 years and when he was uh, uh, giving his presidential speech, he actually invited his prison guards that mistreated him horribly to his inauguration. And the people around him were like, Mr. Mandela, these are people that abused you horribly while you're in falsely imprisoned for 30 years. He said, if I didn't invite them to my speech, I would be mentally locked up in prison for the rest of my life. Corey Ten Boom, who loved her sister, who was close to her sister, who would die for her sister, she was captured into the concentration camps. She loved her sister so much and the guards knew that. So the guards would take her sister and rape her in front of her just so she could watch it. And when she was put in a, 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 a cell where the sewer ran through it, and every day she 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 had to smell sewer and there was no windows. You know what she said? She said, every single day, an ant would come in my cell. She said, and I knew God was sending that ant for, for company. And I thank God for that ant. And how about Viktor Frankl? So I can go on and on and on and on and on. If Corey Ten Boom can have appreciation for an ant, and then forgive the person who consistently raped her sister in front of her. And then forgave everybody after she set herself free. What business do I have not forgiving those who hurt me? I'm sorry, that's just my, my, my thought. Not to mention, not to mention, I said before, even if people don't forgive, deserve forgiveness, I deserve peace. I tell my clients all the time, if it costs you your peace, the price is too high. And the price of holding on to anger was too high for me. That's well said. I think the reason we don't let go is we think that's letting them get away with it. It also gives us a false sense of empowerment because anger is the bodyguard to sadness. And a lot of times we don't want to feel that sadness. So we release our bodyguard. What's our bodyguard? Anger.
forgiveness is really a key to healing. Now, can I tell you something? Please. I think what's important is that you have to define what forgiveness is for you. Because if you ask a hundred different people, what is forgiveness? You're going to get a hundred different responses and you have to define what forgiveness means to you. Then once you define it, you first have to apply it to yourself. Mm. Self-forgiveness. Do you forgive yourself? And I even ask people to forgive themselves if they were cheated on. Now you don't forgive yourself for having any responsibility and being cheated on because you don't. What you do is you forgive yourself for ignoring your intuition. You forgive yourself for ignoring the pink and red flags you ignored. You forgive yourself for believing the lies your parents told you that you were not worthy or you were ugly. You forgive yourself. Then you apply that forgiveness like a ripple effect to those around you. I'm so grateful, Mr. J, that you decided when you were in your dark time to keep going, that you said, I'm gonna come out the other side and help other people. I know that the ripple effects of this conversation and your work in the world is and will continue to be a healing bomb to many. And I thank you for recognizing your gift and sharing it with all of us. So thank you. Thank you, Brenda. I appreciate your time and and your gift. Thank you. And thank you for tuning into this really special edition of The Alchemy of Pain. As I always end each episode, if you are in that dark place, keep pressing against the Christmas. Things are getting stronger so you can